misfits. This is where I speak to the rebels, outliers, and the unconventionals. Try to see things and how they see it, and to learn from them. Some of these people include Betty Lee. At the age of 16, did a first solo travel around the world for an entire year, which I got to meet her in Peru. It is wow. Taking Soon, who is the architect behind the People's Park Complex, the first multi-story residential and shopping mall in Singapore, Derek Sivis, and a whole lot more. This episode, we have Seth Golden. To me, he needs no introduction, but hey, some people hide under a rock. So here goes. Seth Golden is the author of 21 bestsellers that includes Tribes, Purple Cow, Lynchpin, The Dip, and This Is Marketing. His blog, which you can find by typing Seth into Google, is one of the most popular blogs in the world. In 2013, Seth Godin was inducted to the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame. His two TED Talks are among the most popular of all time. He's also the founder of the Out MBA, the social media pioneer Squidoo, Yo-Yo Dying, which is one of the first internet companies. In this conversation, we spoke about how to attract talent into a company, how to create change in a big organization as a little small employee, and how Seth writes books and ship projects at lightning speed. So, without further ado, enjoy. Um, first of all, before I guess we begin, we sort of officially begin, just want to say um, thank you for making time. Uh, happy that you're alive um, from, and the seed didn't took you away from us. And I hope that uh, Simon feel guilty about all this. <laughs> Part of the preparing for our conversation, I have a few people want to express their gratitude to you. Brian Elliott, Joanne Tan, Sarah Pack, Debbie Millman, Michelle Florendo, Michelle Welch. And Amazing David people Hyatt. all. Every one of them. So I've sent a, a list of questions to you and you also have sent a media kit to me for your book. Right. I did not read. I did not read the questions on purpose because I wanted to be present and just have a conversation. So, this second set of questions, some of them might be a little personal, and I know just, you're not. Just fan. start. Just start. Okay. Okay. Great. Let's begin. Last book you create, a Carbon Almanac, with more than three hundred volunteers all around the world, people are doing it for their own free time without getting paid. Um, why did you make it? And uh, what has it achieved since it's out? Oh, it changed my life without a doubt. It changed the life of so many people, not just who worked on it, but who've read it. I was motivated to do it because I read Kim Stanley Robinson's amazing book, The Ministry for the Future, and realized that I was not talking about climate as much as I might. I wrote my first blog post about it 15 or 20 years ago um, because I felt stupid. I felt uninformed and I felt like a hypocrite. And I thought if I feel that way, I bet other people do as well. And I have made many almanacs in my early career, so I understood the magic of an almanac, a book of facts, footnoted, no opinions, just here's what the world knows. And the extraordinary thing about this book is it helps people see that a complicated problem can be understood and that we have been brainwashed indoctrinated by oil companies and others into thinking one thing when it might not be the case. And in terms of changing my life, in addition 
to seeing the enormity of what we're dealing with, the joy and the magic of coming together, hundreds of other people, never in person. We never had one real-time meeting where everyone attended. And how we could create things together, that's what inspired the Song of Significance, and it has given me the fuel uh, to keep going. It's really cool what humans can do when they get together. Yeah, it reminded me of the magic of Wikipedia. Mm. Yeah, and which is also a perfect segue of um, what I want to talk to you about this in this new book, because uh, you mentioned about creating conditions, right, for enrollment, tension, safety, significance, and all the good stuff. <laughs> so maybe we could use the carbon almanac as a starting point. Right, and you can pick a few of this condition of how you backwards engineering, and you know to create these conditions for carbon almanac to happen. Yeah, well, so Wikipedia is a miracle. I've known Jimmy Wales for a long time, because Wikipedia is inherently an open system. They have to deal with trolls and deletionists. They have to deal with people who have a particular point of view who aren't necessarily aligned with the same mission that others are on. And my approach with the Carbon Almanac was a little different in that we said exactly what we were going to do and when we were going to get it done by. We made very clear rules about our point of view, about our need to footnote everything. And we said to the people who were in it, many of whom I'd never met before, this is where this bus is going. If you don't want to be on this bus, this would be a good day to get off. And a key part of creating the conditions as a leader is choosing where you're going. You can't cede that to every, anybody who walks by. And real significance is caused by change. So you need to know who you're trying to change. What's the change we seek to make? Who's it for? What's it for? What's our impact? And that combined with page 19 thinking, combined with treating people with respect, criticizing the work, but never the worker. You add these pieces up, embracing turnover, and you can create a resilient, powerful organization, fundamentally different than what an industrialist might do. So juicy. <laughs> mm, I'm, so the Carbon Omnet, I think since it's been out, has created a lot of conversation. And I just kind of want to sort of, if I could have you tease out a couple of important things it has changed from well, policymakers of groups that have come together to push local communities to create certain policies that took the leaf blower out. Do you have any of this to highlight? And then can we weave in maybe how you got the first bunch of people, you know? Okay, those are sort of unrelated, but I'll try. I would say two things have happened since the Almanac came out, and I don't think the Almanac should get blame or credit for either one of them. Uh, one is uh, the weather's getting worse. The, the disruptions are getting bigger. And the second is that more and more people are accepting that we need to do something. What the Almanac does in the face of those two shifts is give people a place to start the conversation. And we never thought that this book all by itself 
would cause significant change to our response to the climate. What we did know is that books last and that people who touch a book like this are changed and then they hand out five or 10 or 20. We are seeing organizations buying them dozens at a time because they're understanding that they could probably greenwash their way for a while, but it's going to catch up with them and that they need smart people in their institution who get it and without a point of view, just by outlining what everybody already knows with the science, the Almanac has provided a useful tool. As for how uh, it started, there was no magic. I invited five people I knew and trusted, and then I blogged about it and people applied, and we just picked people based on geography and background. And there was nothing special that I did that couldn't be done by others in other projects. This isn't unique to me or to this team. What it is, is a mindset. You know, if you look at WordPress, which powers uh, 35% of the internet, Matt Mullenweg's company, Automatic, has more than 2,000 employees. They don't have an office. They were distributed before the pandemic. So this can be done in lots of fields. You just have to decide you want to seed complete authority and control, and instead create the conditions for the group to make the magic happen. Thank you. I think when you say that it's no magic, it does look like magic from the outset, <laughs> right? Um, and of course, you know, people might see that, oh, because it's Seth Godin, so, you know, therefore it happens. But it's not true, right? Um, do you have examples for the naysayers just to give them, you know, some things to think about. Well, one of the uh, best forward expressions I've learned from the internet is shun the non-believers. And I have no time for the naysayers. If they don't get it, that's fine. They should just go back to what they were doing. We don't need everyone to come along on the journey of significance or everyone to come along on the journey of dealing with the climate. That if you're a billionaire and you get your jollies firing people in public and being a troll, you're going to be a troll. I can't change your mind. But if you are coming up, trying to make an impact, maybe you're younger than me, maybe you're new to a field, maybe you have less to lose than someone who's defending the status quo, then what I'm saying is here's a path, not the only path, but a path. And what I highlight uh, in the Song of Significance is things like Ray Anderson at Interface. An individual, whether they're in charge or not in charge, can change things. And for so long, we've been indoctrinated into believing it's someone else's job to change things. And my mission is to help people realize it's their chance to change things. Great. I'm glad you brought up Ray Anderson because you're going to weave him into it. Um, but maybe a, a good place to start is in the creative you know, industry, which is sort of where my friends are. Um, you know, I heard many rumors or news from the vines that I can't find people who's willing to do the work. They're not like me. How am I going to hire all these people? How can I motivate all these people? And they're just, they're just lazy, this new generation, right? Mm -hmm. So let's have that. And then can we weave in a Kodak and a Nintendo, you know, SK studies? I don't know if those two. <laughs> Come together. <laughs> okay, so to 
many of the people who are your friends are freelancers. And I'm a freelancer. You're looking at my entire team right here. Freelancers, we get paid when we work. Freelancers are not entrepreneurs. We're not less than entrepreneurs. We're not more than entrepreneurs. We're just different. Freelancers are defined by their client. And often talented freelancers decide that they would like to scale, make more of an impact, make more money. So they try to hire junior versions of themselves, people who will do everything they tell them to do, who are just like them, but will work cheap. And when a freelancer tries to scale, stress follows because your clients aren't happy about it. Your employees are tired of you being the front person and them just doing it. So scaling is a mistake. The way to do better as a freelancer is to get better clients. Yes, you should outsource any task that can be easily outsourced that's generic, right? But no, you shouldn't try to find junior versions of you. Just get better clients. So if you try to hire someone who's 23 years old and pay them very little and ask them to do everything you tell them to, well, yeah, of course they're not going to show up the way you want them to because it's a lousy deal. If you're an entrepreneur, your job is not to do your job, right? The CEO shouldn't be programming. That's not her job. Her job is to hire programmers and every other job that can be defined. That's the only job of the CEO, to find people to do all the jobs. And if that's what you're in business to do, then creating the conditions for people who want to find significance You'll have no trouble finding amazing people because there's a shortage of folks who are offering them that, but that is where the future comes from. Hmm. Okay. So let's separate and distinct the creative agencies, people who, who does that, you know, and then let's move into just creative companies, entrepreneurs. And I don't know if, you know, because we have spoke so long, maybe you want to put Apple in there. Maybe you want to put Elon in there. Maybe you want to put Google in there. Um, so are they doing significant works? What do you think? And how can a company who's not, you know, shift? Okay, so here's the question I would ask people. In any given day, how many minutes or hours do you spend adding value that's particularly distinct and high value? is yours and yours alone to create versus how much time do you spend feeding the bureaucracy, doing what you're told and being a cog in the machine? And I think if most people were honest when they answered that question, they'd say between five minutes and 45 minutes a day is when I add most of the magic and value I create. And the opportunity is to find people who have value to add and let them do it for a few hours a day, not a few minutes a day. Because then everyone adds more value. So who's in the creative business? Well, uh, if you go to the Park Hyatt uh, in Singapore or Tokyo, wherever the nearest one is, it's just a dark, quiet room. Why are you paying five times more than the hotel down the street? Well, what you're paying for is all the moments that the people on that staff acted like people as opposed to cogs in the Marriott system. Because the folks who are just churning it out, that's a $99 hotel room. That's not a $400 hotel room. It's when a human extends themselves that 
you paid extra. So if I was running that hotel, I would try to figure out how to find people who want to extend themselves and pay them to do so, as opposed to giving everyone a script and a rule book and say, do this. Because I think running a Park Hyatt is a creative enterprise because it's human interaction. If I look at the, I don't know how many people, 60,000 people that work at one of these giant tech companies, how many of them add unique magical value that we pay for? 5%, right? Most people there are moving paper from one pile to another, being the soft tissue of a giant corporation. And we needed that, but we don't need it anymore because we can outsource it. We can use ChatGPT. We can find AI. We can find robots. One by one, any job where we can write down what you do all day, we can find someone cheaper than you to do it. And so that is why we are entering this post-industrial world. And I'm not going to try to explain how someone who thinks industrial values are important can sort of put this veneer on top. Harvard asked me to give a talk next month, and they said, what's it about, blah, blah, blah. And then they rewrote it, because that's what they do. And they said, no, we're going we're gonna to call it helping people feel like they're being significant, as opposed to actually letting people be significant, because they're Harvard. That's the only way they think of the world, is through the industrial lens. I don't have a shortcut for how you can crank it out cheaper and faster. I do believe that the cheaper and faster road is getting shorter and shorter, that the companies that think they can profit from that in the long run are mistaken. And we're all like creative companies now if we're going to be around for years to come. Okay, so I cannot let that go. So did, I used to go to speak at Harvard after that? It's part of the deal, right? All right. <laughs> I got a good story and, out of it. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you did. Um, so, because you brought up Hyatt and Marriott, right? Let's say Marriott, the leader of Marriott, um, wants to be like a chip. Um, and he said, I want to move and shift. Where should he begin? This is such a big thing. Yeah. Okay, so the Carbon Almanac is about systems change. There isn't an individual who can change everything all by themselves. We live in a system that moves these things forward. Well, Marriott is the system, and it works inside a system. Hotels.com pushes each hotel to be a little cheaper than the next one. The franchise system pushes every hotel to be more average than the next one. So to show up in an industry that is deeply embedded in an industrial commodity system and change it at scale is basically impossible. Instead, what you can do is say, there are many brands in the hotel business. Let's pick one of them and figure out how to make it count in a way that people will pay extra for. And so to give you an example from 70 years ago, in San Luis Obispo, uh, where William Randolph Hearst has his castle, uh, there's a hotel that's still in business that I stayed in when I was 16 years old called the Madonna Inn. And the Madonna Inn is an independent hotel where every single room has a theme, like a real theme. It's like an amusement park that's a hotel. And you can stay in the Flintstones room and you can stay in this room. And the, and the, the Flintstones room, I remember, was filled with rocks and everything. Some group of people who were seen as crazy invented that hotel. They said there are plenty of dark, quiet rooms you can stay in, but there's only one Madonna Inn. 
So if I was the CEO of Marriott, I'd say, look, we know how to run a hotel where the carpets aren't dirty and where the check-in works fine. Yeah. Now, on top of that, how do we make a hotel that people will talk about? Something remarkable. How do, on top of that, how do we create interactions that people have at the hotel that they remember going forward? And so my job as a CEO of Marriott isn't to tell you the answer, right? Maybe it should be a nudist colony. Maybe it should be a hotel that helps people who are neurodiverse. I don't know. Not my job to figure that out. My job is to create the conditions for you to figure that out. So we have resources, not unlimited. We have time, not unlimited. Let's figure out a solution to a problem that hasn't been interestingly solved in a very long time, knowing it's not going to scale in one day, but the change never does. Mm. And it sounds to me like if I'm the CEO of Marriott, it's about choosing five people and creating a little team of, you know, and just going, take one brand and let's make something, let's try something that might not work. It might be five people and it might be 500 people. It depends on how permeable a system you're trying to build. If you pick five people, they feel like the stakes are high. They're going to try to read your mind. They're going to come up with something that might be really safe. If you can build a system that's more permeable, I mean, where did the Big Mac come from? The Big Mac did not come from Illinois. I know you're far away, but Illinois stayed in the U.S. where McDonald's is headquartered. Not where it came from. It came from a franchise in Pennsylvania that broke the rules and started selling something that wasn't on the menu. And so there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of franchises, and one of them figured out how to make the most profitable product in McDonald's history. When Paul Orfalia was running Kinko's and he had 2,000 stores, all he did was go into as many stores as he could find and say to the person at the desk, what did you come up with that's new, that's working? Hmm. His entire leadership strategy was that one thing over and over and over again. So one store figures out, oh, we can sell books by the cash register. So he spreads the word and now lots of them do, right? So it's not the industrial thing of I handpicked five people, go build something that's guaranteed to work. It's I created a platform where it's not just a brainstorming session. Let's try it. Let's figure out what happens when someone walks into any Marriott and someone behind the desk says one sentence. What's the sentence to say? No one knows, but a lot of us can figure it out, right? Let's keep cycling and cycling and cycling. But that is not the mindset of a successful industrialist. The successful industrialist says we made the... The Ford Mustang in 1970, let's make tiny, tiny, tiny incremental changes to it. Well, guess what? Someone took a leap at Ford, a group of people, and now the electric one's doing great. But that was a leap. That wasn't an incremental shit. Now that we talk about this, can we weave in who is Ray Anderson and how do you change a boring manufacturing industry to something that people want to talk about and not talking about it today? Yeah. So... Um, uh, Ray's no longer with us. Ray uh, started a carpet company with an insight, which he stole from a company in Europe, which is that instead of giant re rolls of carpet for uh, offices, which are a problem because if someone drops grape juice, you have to replace the whole thing, make squares, 12 inches by 12 inches. And now if someone spills grape juice, you can just replace four squares and the rest of the carpet's fine. And 
this company interface was doing fine. Ray was a scrappy entrepreneur. They didn't have a lot of money. They weren't giant. And he read a book by Paul Hawken. This was, I think, Paul's first book on the environment. And this was a long time ago. And he had an epiphany, which is that carpeting is a really filthy business. That he was running a company that was taking oil out of the ground, turning it into something non-recyclable, and making a big mess. And so he called a meeting of his top dozen people. And he said, we're going to become the first sustainable carpet company in the world. And I don't know how to do it. Here's a piece of paper. And it says, we will accomplish this by, and there's a blank. He said, write down the date. Tell me how we're going to do it. And the people in the room freaked out. He walked out. They freaked out because they said, we signed up to be in an industrial setting. We signed up for a business that was going to make carpet 1% better every year. And all of a sudden, we were having to take responsibility for this huge shift. And in fact, not only did they beat the date they wrote down, uh, not only are they now carbon negative, meaning that interface puts more back into the ground and the world than they take out. But this is the big win in the interviews with those dozen people and the people who worked for them. They all say it was the best job they ever had. Mm. And that is what makes something significant. It's not simply that you made a profit that you accomplish your goal, but why can't it be the best job you ever had? What's the point of spending 90,000 hours at work if it's not the best job you ever had? Wow. Okay, so maybe I love to shift into as an employee, as a person who loved that idea, as a leader in a big organization who wants to make a little shift, right? And we can take an example of a pharmaceutical company, right? And he or she brings a new idea in and the boss hears it now. And then he says, oh, it's too risky. Oh, that's not enough budget. And he rejects the idea. Mm-hmm. So what can this person do? You know, he don't want to complain all day. <laughs> but right. he should do something if Yeah. So this is super common for a bunch of reasons. First of all, just because you're creative doesn't mean you deserve applause. Just doesn't mean you deserve everyone to say, that's a great idea. I mean, I got 800 rejection letters in a row as a book packager. I could say, well, that's not fair. I'm creative. But they're in business to make a living, and they didn't think my idea was going to make money. So what to do with that? Well, the first thing is that you don't have authority, but you can take responsibility. Meaning, you can see the system you work in and decide how far you can push it. Number two is... If you need to work in a place where these sorts of ideas get traction, you might have to leave. No one said you have to stay there. And industrial systems are very resilient. The status quo is the status quo because it's good at sticking around. And so what we begin with is an industrialist looks at the world through an industrialist mindset. You've got to figure out, do you want to work with someone who looks at the world that way? Can you change the way they see the world? Can you pile enough examples in front of them of how your competitors, how the people you're following are shifting, right? So Nintendo used to make playing cards, and then they were going to fail as a playing card company. And someone came in and said, instead of these things, let's figure out how to make video games. That was daring and extraordinary and uncommon. But 
in one field after another, what we see is if someone who isn't in charge takes responsibility, does a tiny thing and it works, and then they give credit to their boss, they tend to get a chance to do it again. And it's these incremental shifts in how we engage with our workers and our customers that can spread over time. So, no, there's no permission slip that says you're entitled to have everything you want. What I'm saying is if we can't begin to walk away from industrialism, we're going to race to the bottom, and that's not fun. Mm. And and now this person is like, okay, well, I really want to try. I really want to take responsibility and give credit away. And then he's still scared. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then Seth says, well, you know, you know, people who take responsibility some gets a pass. But then, is it really? He's thinking of hate. <laughs> Do you have examples? Yeah, no, you might get fired. I think it's really, really unlikely. The number of people who have shown up and said, I was doing things that were right for the customer. I wasn't costing my company a lot of money or reputation. I was taking responsibility and teaching the people around me what was working. And it was in very small increments and I got fired for it. I don't hear from those people. Maybe they just don't want to talk to me. But generally, if you are going to get fired for doing that, you don't want to work there anyway. Right? And so, you know, let's say you work for a media company seven years ago and you think they should get into podcasting. One thing you could do is go to the CEO and say, I want to start a podcasting division. I need $20 million in 10 employees. The other thing you could do is over lunch, you could start an internal company podcast where you interview other people in the company about what they do and start broadcasting the podcast just to people inside the company. Are you going to get fired for doing that? I think that's unlikely, right? If it turns out that that podcast you've made in your spare time is worth listening to, more people are going to listen to it, right? You could even just deliver it via the voicemail system. Who knows? At some point, if you are doing that, highlighting your coworkers, amplifying their voices, showing that this medium is magic, at some point, someone's going to say, do you think you can make a podcast for the public? Right? But that's how change happens in organizations. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think people are in a rush, right? People are in a rush. Sometimes they want to see it yesterday and then they make a mess, right? Um, because they have not seen a change maker actually make change. Um, how do they learn? Well, you know, we call three-year-olds toddlers. And the reason is because they toddle. Uh, they spend a lot of time falling down. And then just about every one of them learns how to walk. But no one learned how to walk by sitting still, reading some books, and then one day getting up and walking. You have to toddle. That's the only method. And so I see you've got a copy of the practice there. The practice is just about being a toddler. It's how do you show up and show up and show up in generous ways that are resilient and non-fatal on your way to better? I like it. I like it. And now in a, there's a special category of institution that makes policies the civil institution. And we know that they are filled with risk-adverse people. <laughs> but let's say they do make some great policy that can create care at scale, right? And you are someone who wants to do care at scale. 
how and they just where this small group of people will actually do the work of this 95 percent of people who just push papers how can where can they find the five percent and you know hang out at that spot is there a place or do you know that well i would say Mm. that the best way to find these people is to lead and then they will find you uh that's how i met chip conley um that's how so many people I know who have made a ruckus have been mm-hmm. on the radar, is that when you start a book group at work, the people who are going to join your book group are the kind of people who you want to spend time with. Ah, sweet. Short and sweet. Um, move a little bit into a different category now. <laughs> nonprofit. Right? You work with some of the best nonprofit in the world, or you, some might say so. Um, what does nonprofit play a role, the role in our culture today? So in the U.S., nonprofits get a tax exemption. Why do we do that? We do it because they are trying to solve a problem that needs solving. And if we knew how to solve a problem, we would have solved it already and it wouldn't be a problem anymore. So the entire purpose of a nonprofit is to fail and to fail, and to fail. Because that's the only way you solve a problem is by trying things to see what works. And too often, our culture has pushed nonprofits to never fail, to never make mistakes, to never admit their mistakes if they do make them. And I think that's a fundamental error. I think that the best nonprofits are laboratories They are narrating and publishing their work so that the people who follow them don't have to make the same mistakes they make. That Mm. if we can embrace the idea that the purpose of a nonprofit is to experiment, to solve a problem we haven't solved yet, then they become huge uh, cycles of positive innovation. And again, doing significant work. Both my parents were in nonprofits. I've been lucky enough to support many in my uh, work, and they're important, critical, but they're not in the first aid business, or at least they shouldn't be. They should be in the business of changing systems and experimenting. Wow. Okay. I'm aware of time. Do you have something to run to? Uh, I do. I do have more questions. Okay. I have, about, I have about five minutes left. Okay. Let me choose here. It's difficult, you know? <laughs> Maybe let's do one more nonprofit, and then after that, we'll talk about sort of who should get the book and who should not get the book. Okay. And then, oh, I need to put in this one. Sorry. This one's from David and about going to his event. Uh, oh, dear. Okay, so let's move on from nonprofit and just talk about the book for a second, because we, we just scratched the surface of the book. I'm not going to hand on the book. I just sort of, you know, listen in to whatever that you say. So... Who would you say are the ones who will benefit greatly from the book? And who should just avoid the book altogether because they're going to lay it at the side and giving them book guilt? You know, we associate a bunch of emotions with books. Kids' books remind us of our parents reading to us. Adult books remind us of high school. And so they tend to be avoided. Audiobooks are magic because they're a whole new experience and we can immerse ourselves in them. I've never written a book for everyone. I'm not trying to write books for everyone. I'm trying to say to people, 
if the idea that work could be better resonates with you, if the idea that your team could be more honest with itself, if the idea that meetings are broken, if those things resonate with you and you are eager to do something about it, this is why I wrote the book. But mostly a book, a business book, is a chance to have a conversation. And that's why it's not a blog post. That's why it's not a podcast. It's here, read this, and then let's talk about it. And I'm hoping that these conversations will happen. And that's why I bought five copy. And whoever that wants, we'll figure out later down the road and you'll get one mailed to you. And then the last one in. So this one's for David. And assuming you are available and all the ducks are in the row. So what would make you go all the way to Wales, UK, uh, for do? Is well, there anything? It's very, it's very kind of him to ask VAU. As part of working on the Carbon Almanac combined with the worldwide pandemic, uh, I haven't been on a plane for work in two years, and I have no intention of getting on one again. That could change, but it's not in the cards right now. So if they could move Wales to New York, I will come with no problem. <laughs> and um, are there any new projects that needs a couple of interns uh, anytime and any <laughs> at all so people can come to you i'm not good at that and i'm very clear with people that when i do a project i'm trying to do it remotely asynchronously i tend to reach out to people who were volunteers in previous stuff or who i've danced with but I can't believe how lucky I am to work with people like Felice or Jasper or Blessing or Eva or Ava. These are magical human beings. And I just realized we don't get tomorrow over again, so we might as well spend it doing something we're proud of with people we care about. All right, Seth Godin. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Brian. Keep making a ruckus. All right, it is over. Thank you so much for staying to the end. There's a little surprise. For those of you who head down to the, my blog, there's a link in there. And if you put your name and your address, there's five books. I will mail it out to you. The Seth Godin new book, The Song of Significance. And for the rest of you, I hope you have a fantastic week ahead. You forgot to say don't close the window.